1: a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless.
2: I've been waiting for 12 years to be retried, and I wish to be retried because Mr. Bailey, F. Lee Bailey of Boston, is going to vindicate me and prove my innocence in court. However, the question is that I fear for my wife's health for the ordeal that she must go through on top of the ordeal she's already been subjected to. This has not been easy on her, and this goes for the rest of the family, including our son, our daughter, our parents in Europe. This is not going to be easy on them. Some of them because they're too young and others because they're too old. But on the other hand, I welcome the chance to prove my innocence, which I will do. I suppose
3: I'd rather defend an innocent man because it's always more gratifying to get a a positive result for someone who's innocent. On the other hand, the pressure is worse because if you lose the case, you've got to keep appealing it, appealing it, appealing it, as long as there's any appeal to try, and it's uh, very frustrating very depressing to know that someone who is innocent is sitting in jail despite your best efforts. The unseen part of the iceberg is the preparation of the case, which involves investigation. After all, if you have the evidence with you, uh, no amount of advocacy is going to affect the result and if it's against you, the same is probably true and if the investigation establishes clearly enough the guilt or the innocence of the defendant, I, uh, the man representing him isn't really going to make that much difference. I'm simply a functionary in the system who's obliged to give him the best defense I can and it certainly doesn't bother me because Guilt is not proven to the satisfaction of the jury. Well, I have very few contemporaries. Uh, if you're talking about people who devote all of their time to the defense of criminal cases, there are only a handful in the country. And uh, some of them that I know I have great respect for. Uh, on the other hand, there aren't a great many lawyers in this country that I would be happy to have defend me if I were in to a jail. Tougher the case, that is the tougher to get a conviction, I suppose, the more competent the prosecutor who uh, obtains one, one of the the best lawyers that I bumped into a courtroom. Uh, although I don't want to sound showmanistic about it, it was my own classmate, Mr. Kahn, who tried the strangler, who tried a prior case with me. Uh, the prosecutors in the Shepard and Coppolino cases were both very competent men. But a prosecutor is kind of a different animal than a defense lawyer, and I think it's uh, very hard to compare them as trial lawyers or advocates there. Expertise is different. Their whole mode of operation is different. And uh, they tend to melt into a general category. I think you'd have a great deal of trouble remembering from American history one famous prosecutor, whereas there are numerous uh, defense heroes whose names will probably never be forgotten.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 99 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media Podcast. To honor the 99th and 100th episodes, I will be taking you back to where it all began, Bay Village, Ohio. And no, we are not talking about Amy this week, but another unsolved murder, and that is the case of Marilyn Shepard. And according to Case Western Reserve Law School, the Shepard murder case assumed legal importance when Dr. Samuel Shepard's 1954 conviction for the murder of his wife was set aside by the U.S. Supreme Court on the grounds that the defendant was not sufficiently insulated from the excessive publicity surrounding the case and thus was denied a fair trial in Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court. This decision helped define what protections from adverse media coverage were necessary under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Now, it has been nearly 67 years since the awful murder of Marilyn Shepard the 1954 beating death of Marilyn, along with the arrest and conviction of her husband, still resonates with the community today. And according to Thought.co, Sam Shepard was actually voted most likely to succeed by his senior high school class. He was athletic, smart, good looking, and came from a good family. Marilyn Shepard was attractive with hazel eyes and long brown hair. The two began dating while in high school and eventually married after Sam graduated from the Los Angeles Osteopathic School of Physicians in September of 1945. After he graduated from medical school, Sam actually continued his studies and received his Doctor of Osteopathy degree, and he went to work at the Los Angeles County Hospital. Now his father, Doctor Richard Shepard, and his two older brothers, Richard and Stephen, also were doctors, and they happened to be running a family hospital and convinced Sam to come back to Ohio in the summer of 1915 and work with the family practice. Now, by this point, the couple had a four-year-old son, and that was Samuel Reese Shepard, who went by the name Chip. And with a loan from Sam's father, they actually purchased the first home. And the home was overlooking Lake Erie on Lake Road in Bay Village. And pretty much uh, they settled into the life of being a married, physician, suburban family. And Marilyn, she was a mother, been a homemaker, and she even taught Bible classes at the Methodist Church. But as with all couples, there were issues. And despite the couple enjoying... Sports together, and they spent their le- leisure time playing golf, water skiing, and having friends over for parties. And to most, Sam and Marilyn's marriage pretty much seemed free of any issues. But as all things are hidden, the marriage was suffering due to a little bit of Sam's infidelities. And unfortunately, Marilyn knew about this. And Basically, according to Sam Shepard, although the couple had experienced problems, divorce was never discussed, and they were actually working to revitalize their marriage. And that is when, of course, tragedy struck. Now, the chronology that was mostly used in this retelling comes from The Mockery of Justice, the true story of the Shepard murder case by Cynthia L. Cooper and Sam Reese Shepard, which was published in 1997 by Penguin Books. Nova Online also is a resource for this episode, along with articles from the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and, of course, the Associated Press. So I want to take you back to the evening of Saturday, July 3rd, 1954. According to reports, the night had been a pleasant one at the home of Sam and Marilyn Shepard. Friends from their neighborhood Don and Nancy Ahern and their two children joined the Shepherd family for drinks and a casual dinner. And from a screened-in porch, the Shepherds and Hearns finished dinner, watched the sunset over Lake Erie, and then Don took his children back home and then returned to the Shepherd's house for a late-night movie. And this is when they turned on Strange Holiday, and it was one of the two available television channels at the time. <laughs> just to give you an idea of what 1954 was like. And according to the Aherns, Marilyn sat on Sam's lap until Sam had apparently had enough of her sitting on him and having spent the day at work decided to move to a daybed where he eventually fell asleep. And this is when Marilyn showed the Aherns the door. And it was early in the next morning, that Marilyn Reese Shepard was murdered by a severe, and I mean severe, beating while in her bed. And to make matters worse, she was four months pregnant. On the morning of Marilyn's murder, Bay Village Mayor Spencer Houck and his wife Esther had received a call from Sam. Quote, for God's sake, Spen, get over here quick. I think they've killed Marilyn, he told the couple. It was shortly before 6 a.m. when Bay Village mayor Spencer Hawke and his wife Esther had arrived at the Shepherd home after receiving that phone call and just after 6 the first officer Fred Drentkin, had arrived at the Shepherd home as well and all this happened while their son Sam Jr who was 7 was sleeping in the next room now between 6 and 7:30 a.m. police officers relatives press and neighbors make their way through the house so Needless to say, the crime scene was not secured. Chip was taken to his uncle's house by Richard. And Dr. Sam Shepard could be seen in obvious pain and was sent to his hospital, Bayview Hospital, which was only a few miles down the road. And this was around, I don't know, 6.30 or 7.30 a.m. when he was sent to the hospital. And then it was around 8 a.m. when the coroner, Sam Gerber, arrived. Now, for the next six hours, they kept Dr. Sam Shepard under sedation, and he was being treated for shock and neck injuries, which he said resulted from his struggle with an intruder. Now, he was visited, despite being under sedation, several times and interrogated by the coroner, coroner's investigator, local police chief, two Cleveland police officers, and Bay Village police. And by mid-afternoon, Cleveland police officer Shockey tells Shepard, quote, I think you killed your wife. Now, Shepard had maintained his innocence despite questioning by officials. And newspapers, particularly the Cleveland Press and its editor, Louis Seltzer, demanded his arrest and that the Shepard family was conspiring to shield Sam from the authorities. The publicity intensified with Shepard's arrest of, and continued through, his nine-week jury trial. And it was presided over by Judge Edward Blython. Now, Shepard's home was sealed and closed off to the family until the case was closed. Now, according to FamousTrials.com and many reports from the scene, when Sam was asked about what had happened, Shepard offered a mumbled and On the face of it, improbable account. Shepard said that he was sleeping downstairs on the daybed when he heard Marilyn shout, Sam! According to his story, which he repeated later to police officers, Shepard ran up the dimly lit stairs to their bedroom, where he saw a white form standing next to his wife's twin bed. He grappled with the form, but was hit on the back of his neck and lost consciousness. When he came to, he took Marilyn's pulse and determined her to be dead. After checking Chip's room next door and finding his son sleeping unharmed, Shepard ran downstairs where he saw the form again, this time running out the back door leading to the Lake Erie shore. Sam said he chased down the form, down the stairs, toward the lake, and again battled with the tall, quote-unquote, bushy-haired man. Now, Sam described what happened after he lunged or jumped and grasped the form on the beach. Quote, I felt myself twisting or choking, and this terminated by consciousness. When he revived in the breaking dawn, wet and somehow now missing his t shirt and watch, he went back into the house and called Mayor Hauk. Shepard remained vague about many details, and he didn't know how many intruders were in the bedroom when he first was injured, and he couldn't even be certain of the sex of the fighting form. Calling the intruder a biped in one interview. He attributed his inability to get more specific to the effects of having been knocked out. Twice. Sounds fishy, doesn't it? On July 7, 1954, Marilyn Shepard was laid to rest. Now, unfortunately, because of all the press coverage, her son, Chip, was actually not able to attend. And the same day as the funeral, the county prosecutor criticized Dr. Shepard for refusing to permit immediate questioning, although, as I mentioned before, he gave an account soon after the murder. Now, this is when the pressure of the press became pretty much impossible to ignore for the community and investigators. And on July 8th, 1954, they put out a headline that read, quote, testify now in death. A doctor is ordered, one of hundreds of articles, many with untruths or inadmissible information, printed in the next few months. So the following day, another front-page story, and more pressure. Quote, Dr. Box at lie test. Shepard leads a contingent of officers through the house, showing them what occurred. And again, at this point, uh, it's becoming clear that the press is very adamant that Sam is involved. So it was on July 10th, 1954, that Shepard voluntarily gives a formal statement taken at the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office with several officers in attendance. And again, the reporters must have been on vacation because it would be another 10 days before it was back on the front page with the July 20th, 1954, front page editorial Quote, someone is getting away with murder. This was how the editorial team pressured the investigation. And they kept it up. Just the next day, on July 21st, 1954, the front page editorial, in bold letters, said, Why no inquest? Do it now, Dr. Gerber. As the pressure mounted, Dr. Gerber finally called for an inquest. And so on July 22nd, 1954, they started what was a three-day inquest that was staged in a local gym to accommodate the large crowds as well as the reporters, live television, and radio crews. Dr. Shepard was searched in full view of the crowd, and Dr. Shepard's lawyers were not permitted to participate and were ejected altogether when they tried to introduce evidence. So on July 23, 1954, police formally take over the investigation from the Bay Village Police, and for the first time, they send out their scientific investigation unit. Now, another mistake by the press came on July 26, 1954, with the headline, Police Captain, quote, Urges Shepard's Arrest. Two days later, the headline read, Why Don't Police Quiz Top Suspect? The press, at this point, began to put everything on the line, and on July thirtieth, nineteen fifty four they asked on the front page, quote, "Why isn't Sam Shepard in jail? Lo and behold, at ten p m that night, Dr. Sam Shepard was arrested and taken to suburban city hall, where hundreds of newscasters, photographers, and reporters had awaited his arrival and At this point in the case. It's already a media sensation, and national newspapers begin running massive coverage, including cartoons, editorials, rumor, and everyone's favorite, Innuendo. And then on August 16, 1954, a judge finds no evidence and actually releases Dr. Shepard on bail. Now, this kind of is shocking, but literally the next day, Dr. Shepard is indicted for murder and the grand jury foreman, Brett Winston, or Bert Winston, I'm sorry, complains that members of the grand jury were under enormous pressure. Dr. Shepard is rearrested, and again, this is his last day of freedom for nearly 10 years. And again, Sam would remain in jail and in October of 1954, another editorial criticized the Defense counsel's poll of the public to show local bias for a change of venue motion, saying it, quote, smacks of mass jury tampering. On the morning of October 18, 1954, jury selection for Dr. Shepard's trial does begin, and the courtroom is outfitted with a long table in front of the bar, three feet from the jurors, for seating of 20 press representatives. Three of four rows of benches are actually assigned to the press. All the New York news media, Chicago media, press syndicates, they all had representatives, and including quote-unquote star reporter such as Dorothy Kilgallen. Now, representatives of news media used all rooms on the courtroom floor and with private telephones and telegraphic equipment installed. Radio stations set up broadcasting facilities on another floor next to the jury room. So as you can see, this is really getting out of control. The courthouse has been set up as a media control center, and basically it's at this point that everything is kind of out of the defense and prosecutor's hands. I mean, it is definitely being run by the press. And again, here's another mistake by the media, because on October 19th, they ran a radio debate that was broadcast live in which reporters accused Dr. Shepard of trying to block prosecution and assert that he conceded his guilt by hiring a prominent criminal lawyer. And then continuance of the trial is denied. So on October 23rd, 1954, a front page, two-inch headline, But Who Will Speak for Marilyn?, calling for, quote, justice to sham Shepard. Again, this is just out of control. And October 28th of that same year, the jury is finally sworn in, and the first day of trial consisted of massive coverage, and the jurors visit to the Shepard home. And that was probably an interesting experience. The biggest issue that I find with the case at this present moment is the fact that the jurors weren't not sequestered they had their names and photos and papers over 40 times but for whatever reason they aren't not questioned about the media accounts that they have heard so police prosecutors witnesses the judge juror families give interviews and appear on camera trial transcripts were made available and reported daily on November 21st, 1954, a radio broadcast calls Dr. Shepard a perjurer, comparing him to Alder Hiss. And the judge refuses to question the jury about whether members heard it. The press kept digging holes for themselves at this point when they published on November 24th, 1954, an A column headline saying, quote, Sam called a Jekyll Hyde by Marilyn Cousin to testify. And, shockingly no such testimony is ever presented and as if things weren't salacious enough during a november 1954 national broadcast walter winchell reports that a woman under arrest in new york was dr shepard's mistress and had had an illegitimate child with him now two jurors admit having heard the broadcast but the judge takes no action and guess what the report is false. Then, on December 9th, 1954, police stepped right in it and issued a press statement calling Dr. Shepard a quote unquote barefaced liar. That's not going to sit well with the appeals court. The case was finally put to rest on December 16th, 1954, and the prosecution was seeking guilt of first degree with the penalty of death in the electric chair. And let's take a moment at this point to hear from this week's sponsor. All right, we're back. So between December 17th and December 21st, 1954, the jury deliberated. And the jury is actually sequestered for the first time. But there are no female bailiffs to take care of the five women jurors and jurors are actually permitted to make unmonitored telephone calls home at night. So chaos outside and around the jury room prevailed, and the prosecution, led by John J. Mahone, presented evidence which included analysis of bloodstains found in the house and used Shepard's affair with Susan Hayes, a former lab technician at Bayview Hospital, to establish a motive for murder in what was called a carnival atmosphere the defense led by william j corrigan senior failed to convince the jury of shepard's innocence and he was convicted of second degree murder on december 21st 1954 and sentenced to life in prison where he actually would continue his efforts to secure his release as if there was any doubt on whether or not sam was guilty uh that was ended by the jury's decision. But again, as I mentioned, Sam continued to fight this wrongful imprisonment as he claimed. And at this point, you could have claimed that this was the trial of the century because, in all reality, it really was. I mean, you had media from every different major market in the city of Cleveland broadcasting about this case daily. And again, to say that it's was influenced by the press is just such an understatement, and you'll see why in as this case moves forward. So this was actually the longest criminal trial at that point in American history. So Shepard, who had been in jail since his arrest and was sentenced to life in prison, promised <clears throat> to fight until... He had no fight left, and actually, the Cleveland police returned the shepherd home to the family after the case was closed. Now, the historic home of Sam Shepard's parents, which is where he was arrested, twenty six days after the murder, would later be moved in nineteen eighty four to Huntington Reservation, and become the home of an art gallery, and is. If things couldn't become more tragic for Chip, on January 7th, 1955, Ethel Niles Shepard, which was Dr. Shepard's mom, committed suicide by shooting herself. And the cards really just kept falling at this point because on January 18th, 1955, Dr. Richard Allen Shepard, Sam's father, dies of a hemorrhaging gastric ulcer and suddenly worsened stomach cancer. Unwilling to accept the guilty verdict, in January of 1955, Dr. Paul Leland Kirk, a California criminalist, visited Cleveland and the Shepherd Home. Two months later, Dr. Kirk returned a report that discussed evidence of a third person, blood spatter, and other potential items. And on April, in April of 1955, there was a hearing. On a new trial, in which an affidavit of Dr. Kirk was presented, and the motion was taken under advisement and then denied and Again, the summer of nineteen fifty five Sam Shepard is finally moved from the jail in Cleveland to his new home at the maximum security prison in columbus, Ohio, and that is where he would stay until nineteen sixty four So as Sam sat in prison, Dr. Shepard's appeals to the state court were rejected and the denial was upheld, and in subsequent appeals, including one to the U.S. Supreme Court, despite commentary by every reviewing court criticizing the conduct of the trial and the media. Now in November 1959, things take on a different tone. Richard Eberling is arrested for larceny, including theft of Marilyn shepherd's ring from her brother-in-law's house so put a pin in that name as it will come up again now sam's original defense attorney william corgan died in july of 1961 and this paved the way for f lee bailey to take over the defense within the next year and yes that is the f lee bailey from the oj trial he's been around needless to say a long time. Now it seems as if the public was beginning to question the conviction of Shepherd at this point because in August of 1961 the Shepherd murder case was published by Paul Holmes questioning the conviction of Dr. Shepherd. Now, despite the public beginning to question the conviction, tragedy really couldn't avoid the families of you know, Reese and Shepherds. And on February 13th, 1963, Thomas Reese, who is Maryland's father, committed suicide with a shotgun. And again, this is the second suicide in relation to this case. And needless to say, we don't know what he was suffering from, but I can only imagine what kind of pain it is to lose your daughter in such a tragic and horrific way. And then to have everything be broadcast daily on the news. So needless to say, I can't think what he was thinking, but I can imagine he was under a lot of stress. So now it was back to court with a new attorney, and on April thirteenth, 1963, that F. Lee Bailey filed a new habeas corpus petition in the U.S. District Court and prosecution represented by John Corrigan. As with most sensational crimes today, this was, of course, turned into a television series. And on September 1963, The Fugitive, a popular television show inspired by the Shepard case, is launched. And as if things couldn't get any more wild in this case, on July 16, 1964, guess what? Dr. Shepard is released from prison. After federal district court judge Carl Weinman rules that Shepard was denied a fair trial. Almost immediately following his release from prison on a $10,000 bond, Shepard married Ariane Tabahones. During the trial, Shepard somehow landed a new love interest from overseas, a platinum blonde named Ariane. And Tabahones, or Tebenhones had begun correspondence with Shepard from her home in Germany, then traveled across the Atlantic to be able to visit him in prison. Unfortunately, from the standpoint of public relations for Shepard, Hones turned out to have an older sister who was married to, of all people, Nazi propaganda chief Joseph Goebbels. Now, Shepard's joy was never going to be long-lived, because the Sixth District's Court of Appeal voted two to one to reinstate Shepard's conviction, but this time they allowed him to remain free on bail until his appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. So it was on June 6, 1966, that the U.S. Supreme Court agrees with the Federal District Court Judge Weinman, ruling in Shepard v. Maxwell, that the trial of Dr. Shepard was, quote, a carnival, and that Dr. Shepard was denied a fair trial because the judge failed to take steps to control the courtroom atmosphere and prevent jury bias resulting from excessive press coverage. So on October 24th, 1966, Dr. Shepard's second and supposedly fair trial begins. And this trial did not last nearly as long as on November 16th, not even a month later, the jury finds Dr. Shepard not guilty. Now, Shepard's friend and soon-to-be father-in-law, professional wrestler George Strickland, had introduced him to wrestling and trained him for it. And he actually debuted in August of 1969 at the age of 45 as the killer, Sam Shepard. And Shepard wrestled over 40 matches before his death in 1970, including a number of tag team bouts with Strickland as his partner. And again, this comes from Wikipedia. And, you know, his notoriety of being a convicted killer did help with the audience draw. Now, during his career, Shepard used his doctor knowledge to develop a submission hold called the Mandible Claw. And then, guess what? That would go on to be made popular by wrestler Mankind in 1996. So, during the marriage after the trial, uh, Northeast Ohio was basically the place where Shepard's drug and alcohol violence had finally destroyed the uh, Arianne and Sam marriage. And she said she was a 32-year-old divorcee and the daughter of a wealthy industrialist. And basically, she wanted to get the heck out of Dodge. So um, it's just one of those crazy coincidences. I mean, she put $250,000 to his legal battle in 1960s. I mean, that's insane. And again, don't get me wrong, her father was a Nazi sympathizer and she was a member of the Hitler youth camps and all that terrible stuff that was going on in Germany in the 1930s. But again, Sam was also a raging alcoholic and definitely was a tough person to live with. And the two didn't actually meet for the first time until January 24th, 1963 at a parole hearing. And it was 18 months later that they were married. And that was, again, two days after he was released from prison. So, again, like I mentioned before, Dr. Shepard dies on April 6, 1970. And he was only 46. Now, Dr. Paul Kirk died within a few months as well. So, at this point, you're kind of left thinking... Sam spent 10 years in jail. He was a raging alcoholic. He had some serious health issues. And I'm assuming the time in jail was not good for his health. And to think that he only lived another four years after his release is, or five years, is somewhat shocking. And I just think that it goes to show you one, he was a very unhealthy individual, and two, um, you know, he probably wasn't that great of a guy. And again, if you listen to the reports from his second wife, he was abusive and there's been reports that he was abusive to Marilyn as well. So we kinda left her here, you know, left here to speculate on whether or not Sam was involved in the murder. But it is very important to note that in 1984, and this was January, early January of 1984, that an elderly widow, Ethel May Durkin, dies six weeks after being hospitalized for a quote-unquote fall at her home. As I mentioned before about Richard Eberlein, put a pin in that name as well, because that will come back in Just a few minutes. Now, in 1974, according to an article from the UPI, quote, Mrs. Shepard auctioned the family possessions in her front yard and moved to the southern part of France to forget about Shepard. She said Shepard was a very mild man when not drinking or using drugs, and she remains in contact with his son, Sam, and dental assistant and music writer in Massachusetts and with Sam's brothers, Stephen, in California. She returned to Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 1977, then moved to New Jersey a year later and to Bavaria, Germany, for personal business in 1979. She said she will live temporarily with a realtor friend, William Spang, and his wife in the city I live in, Rocky River, and then rent a home with her mother, Hetty Heberman. Mrs. Shepard also said she will look for a job, her first since she handled the office duties of Mr. Shepard, Dr. Shepard. Her autobiography attracted interest, but nobody was interested in actually purchasing it. Now, she said her book was too touchy because she spoke favorably of her membership in Hitler's youth program and likened the organization for Germans under 18 to this country's Boy Scouts. Not the best way of going about marketing your book. She said, quote, It taught us good things. It taught us to love our country, unquote. We were full of idealism. Well, that's one way of saying it. And Mrs. Shepard's half-sister, again, married Hitler's propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels. So, in July of 1989, Richard Eberling, an interior decorator, and the former window washer at the Shepherd home is convicted of aggravated murder and the death of Ethel May Durkin. And again, as I mentioned before, she had died from a supposed fall. So Sam Reese Shepard, the only child of Dr. and Mrs. Shepard, finally speaks out publicly for the first time in 1989 and he talks about the injustices that he has suffered and begins an effort to solve his mother's murder. And then March of 1999, Sam actually meets with Richard Eberling at the Lebanon Correctional Institution in Ohio. And then the blockbuster movie, The Fugitive, starring the one and only Harrison Ford, based on the television series... Which was based on the Shepherd case, is released. And again, this is a movie about Dr. Richard Kimball, an innocent man wrongly convicted of the murder of his wife. It becomes a Academy Award-winning film. And in 1993, Sam Shepherd begins to reinvestigate the murder. On October 13th, 1995. Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Stephanie Tubbs-Jones announces an investigation into the murder of Marilyn Shepard. Then on February 22, 1996, the first court hearing in over 30 years on the Shepard case takes place before Judge Ronald Suster in Ohio. And then in September of 1997, Dr. Sam Shepard's body is actually exhumed for DNA testing. Six months later, in March of 1980, 98 Terry Gilbert lawyer for the Shepherd family contends that the results of DNA tests conducted by Dr. Muhammad Tahir of the Indianapolis Marion County Forensic Services Agency exclude Dr. Sam Shepard as a donor of the blood found at the murder scene and point to one Richard Eberlein in that case, I pronounce you lucky.
4: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Then four months later, on July 25th, 1998, Richard Eberlein dies in prison. So, in August that same year, one of Eberlein's fellow inmates, Robert Lee Parks, announces shortly before his own death that Eberline confessed to Marilyn Shepard's murder. And on that note, that is all we have for this week's episode of Who Killed Marilyn Shepard. Tune in next week for part two with Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast as we break down the case of who killed Marilyn Shepard. At the end of this episode, I will include a compilation of news clips from this case. It's about 26 minutes long, and it gives you a pretty decent breakdown from the Associated Press perspective on the case. It includes some interviews with Sam Shepard, as well as just an overall perspective of the trial. Again, it's about 26 minutes long, and it is older audio so it doesn't the best quality but it is absolutely interesting and take a listen and tell me what you think or just enjoy the on the ground reporting that was occurring at the time and again stay tuned for part 2 next week so thank you so much for tuning in this week to episode 99 of Who Killed And again, if you enjoy this podcast and my other shows, you can help support independent journalism by clicking on the Donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com, and that is slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3, as well as via PayPal with my email billhuffman123 at yahoo.com. And again, I will also provide a link in the show notes. And really, every contribution does help keep these Slow Burn podcasts running. I did receive a very nice donation this week, and I am very thankful and appreciative and uh, just want to let the listeners know that when donations are made, I do acknowledge them, and I appreciate that more than you know. So again, you can also support the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to your favorite shows. Because those five stars that you do leave, uh, they keep important cases such as the Shepherd case as well as Amy's case in the spotlight. So if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, please do follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Again, you guys... Thank you so much for listening, and this has been a wild ride, episode 99. It's pretty exciting. I appreciate that you have been with me along the way, and I'm really looking forward to next week's episode with Nick, as they are always an enjoyable show. So until next time, you guys know what to do. That is be healthy and stay safe.
5: On July 4th, 1954, the murder of Marilyn Shepard made headlines in Cleveland. The victim's husband, Dr. Sam Shepard, gave police this account of
6: what happened. I believe it was sometime after 12.30 a.m. that Marilyn tried to wake me. I had fallen asleep on the living room couch. I think she asked me to come up to bed. The next thing I knew... Marilyn was screaming or moaning my name. I jumped off the couch and ran upstairs. I thought I saw a white form standing in our bedroom. Then I think I was struck from behind and knocked out. When I came to, I went over to where Marilyn was. I felt she was gone. I believe I then rushed into our son Chip's room. After seeing him, I came to the conclusion he was unharmed. As I came out of Chip's room, I thought I heard a noise downstairs. I spotted a figure near the outside door, and I chased it down the path toward the beach. I tackled this individual from behind. Then I felt as if I had been twisted or choked. That's all I remember. The next thing I knew, I staggered to my feet in the water. Somehow, I made it back up the stairs. I guess I thought I would wake up and find it was all a horrible dream. All I know is that eventually, I somehow realized this was real...
5: Three months later, Cleveland newspapers publish news of Sam Shepard's trial for murder. Since the day of the murder, the news media have published and broadcast both news and opinions about the case. This is their right under the First and Fourteenth Amendments of the Bill of Rights, which guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. But the Bill of Rights also guarantees in the 6th and 14th Amendments that a person accused of a serious crime shall have a trial by an impartial jury with due process of law. In the Shepard case, the rights of the press and the rights of the accused are destined to meet in a head-on collision. Meanwhile, all of Cleveland awaits an answer to the question that has gone unanswered for three months who, in the early morning hours of July 4th, murdered Marilyn Shepard. Was it her husband, Sam Shepard, as the state charges? Or
3: was it a mysterious, bushy-haired intruder, as claimed by Dr. Shepard?
5: The uncertainty had begun on the day of the murder. Police searching the Shepherd House and Grounds, failed to find the murder weapon. Investigators do find signs of an attempted burglary, but they suspect that Shepard has committed the murder himself and staged a burglary as a cover-up. Sam Shepherd is taken by his brother to the Bayview Osteopathic Hospital, which is operated by Dr. Richard A. Shepherd, Sam's father. Shepard is questioned by police while in the hospital. One investigator flatly accuses him of the murder. Noted criminal lawyer, William Corrigan, is retained by the Shepard family to protect Sam's interests. Accompanied by a police guard, Sam leaves the hospital to attend his wife's funeral. With no charges formally pressed against him, Dr. Shepard returns to his practice. Growing impatient, the Cleveland Press runs an editorial urging police to take action against the prime suspect. Four days later, a front-page editorial increases pressure on the police. The following day, the press devotes most of its front page to the case. An editorial addressed directly to the county coroner, Dr. Gerber urges an immediate inquest. The next day an inquest begins. To accommodate the crowds the inquest is held in the gymnasium of a local high school. Newspaper reports are extensive. Shepard is questioned about a romantic involvement with another woman. He denies the inference. On the last day of the inquest, Shepard's lawyer is removed for objecting to the circus atmosphere of the proceedings. The next day, the woman linked to Shepard is brought to Cleveland by police. Her story will prove that Shepard lied under oath. Shepard will later claim he lied to protect her reputation. Four days later, Shepard is arrested. He is indicted by a grand jury and ordered to stand trial. In mid-October, the trial begins in a barrage of publicity. Presiding is Judge Edward Blythin, who is running for re-election to the bench next month. Chief prosecutor is John Mahon, also a candidate in the coming elections. Shepard's lawyer, William Corrigan, asks for a postponement and change of venue, saying it is impossible for Shepard to get a fair trial in Cleveland. Judge Blythen withholds ruling on the motion, says the trial will go on if the attempt to select a jury is successful. In ten days, a jury is selected, and the trial begins. jurors are not kept in seclusion but are allowed to go home at the end of each session. Perhaps they read newspaper articles like this one which suggest that if Marilyn could speak, she would name Sam as her slayer. The trial, with the state building its case solely on circumstantial evidence, continues for nine weeks. Newspapers headline Coroner Gerber's Theory... That the murder weapon was a surgical instrument. This theory, never proved but widely publicized, is damaging to Dr. Shepard. Witnesses for both sides are photographed and interviewed freely by newsmen. Rumors and gossip, not admissible in court, are published. In the November elections, both Prosecutor Mahon and Judge Blython win. By now, everyone associated with the case has become a celebrity in Cleveland. Uh, Would you
7: tell us your impression of Dr. Sam?
4: Well, of course, it's always very difficult to give uh, a full impression of a defendant when you've only heard his voice really once. Uh, uh, he hasn't testified yet at his own trial, as he that he will, and I can only judge him from the very external externals. Uh, he's extremely good-looking. I think he's better-looking in the flesh than he is in his pictures. I've been asked by friends when I've gone back to New York what he's really like and who he really looks like, and i say that in profile, he greatly resembles Marlon Brando, and in full face, he reminds me of Henry Fonda. Why, uh, the man is completely unemotional. He says that someone came into the house while he was sleeping on a downstairs couch. And that, that someone killed his wife and twice knocked him unconscious. He has no idea what time this took place. Uh, he does not know how long he was unconscious on either occasion. The uh, state says that his motive for murder was his love for another woman. That he wanted to get rid of his wife so he could marry this other woman. Until the defense has had an opportunity to attempt to refute this, uh, we must conclude that the state has made out uh, what the jury could accept as motive. Finally,
5: the case goes to the jury.
4: Do find the defendant Sammy Shepard not guilty of murder in the first degree, but guilty of murder in the second degree. James C. Byrd Foreman.
5: On the day of the verdict, Cleveland newspapers print thousands of extra copies, sell them all defense motion for a new trial is denied. Judge Blython contends the publicity surrounding the trial did not violate the rights of the defendant. The Cleveland Press runs a final editorial. Six months after his conviction, Shepard is transferred from the county jail. Since the trial, his mother has taken her own life. His father has succumbed to illness. Now, Shepard begins his life sentence as prisoner number 98860 in the Ohio State Penitentiary. In prison, Shepard meets regularly with his family and lawyers. Many appeals are made for a new trial, but they are all denied. Six years pass. Finally, in 1961, the Shepard family hires a young Boston lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, to continue their efforts to free Sam. I read the trial
3: record, and I met Dr. Sam, and I felt that he was innocent. It just didn't seem right to let an innocent man languish away in prison without even trying to get him out. We filed what is called a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, which asks that he be released because his constitutional rights had been violated. And it came on before Federal Judge Carl A. Weinman in southern Ohio. Some of the things that he found to be constitutional defects in that trial included a lot of pretrial publicity that he thought was most unfair and probably preconditioned the jurors. He found that the judge who heard the case was a prejudiced man, had not been fair to Sam at all, and furthermore... That he didn't keep control of his courtroom, that newsmen were bouncing up and down like jacks in the box, and taking pictures of jurors, and kibitzing and making noise and destroying what we like to think is the decorum of a criminal trial. On these grounds, he termed the Shepard conviction a mockery of justice and released him in ten thousand dollars bail, pending action by the state. And would briefly
4: describe your recent experience
8: in the Ohio Penitentiary, what it was like there for you. It was hell. Who do you think is most responsible for the what you consider to be the unjust decision
7: in 1954?
4: Well, I would say uh, politics, probably. Uh, now, the, the, the decision name names, would you like to? I think that... Uh, well, I, I think in view of the fact that we anticipate litigation here and that Sam will be a
3: party to it, it's probably best if questions of that sort are directed to me. I think that we can answer your question by reading from Judge Weinman's opinion that the newspapers generally and the Cleveland press in particular was horribly prejudicial before and during the trial to the extent that it would
4: have been impossible to assemble a fair jury under any conditions. How much does it cost you? Ten years. Uh, in money, sir. Because... Money could not possibly repay me for my mother's life. How much would it cost to bring her back? My father's my father-in-law.
5: A few days after his release, Shepard marries Arianne Tevin-Johans, a German girl who had begun a correspondence with him while he was in prison. On a trip to New York, they are mobbed by newsmen.
4: Mr. Shepard, how do you decide you're in love with a man who's in prison? Um, well, that's why I came to the States to find out if I really was in love, because you couldn't tell by somebody you have never met. And uh, how many meetings did they take before you did decide? Uh, It was the first moment I walked into the visiting room. How does freedom feel to you, sir? Ecstatic. Mr. Bailey, how can a man be in jail 10 years and uh, just now be proven innocent or be
3: released from jail? Because our system has some serious flaws in it. How do you explain his conviction in the first place? Uh, It was a result, according to Judge Weinman, and in my opinion, of mass hysteria generated by an overzealous press. Was politics involved in this in any way? It was to the extent that the elected officials who had something to do with Sam's conviction uh, were very zealous to get public approval of their actions. Were
4: you in on the case at the beginning? No, I've only
3: been a lawyer for four years. He's been in jail for ten. Almost a year later, the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit ruled by a two-to-one majority that Judge Weinman had been wrong that Sam should not have been let out of jail, and that his so-called constitutional violations were not really that serious after all. I was able to persuade the court to leave Sam Shepard out on bond while we went to the United States Supreme Court. I felt that the issues were large enough and serious enough and applied to enough defendants in enough cases so that that court would want to decide the case and that if it did
5: decide the case, it would do so favorably to Dr. Sam. In the winter of 1965, the United States Supreme Court hears the case. Bailey presents the arguments for Shepard. Arguing the case for the state of Ohio is William Saxby, Attorney General of Ohio.
8: We argued
7: that uh, even though the publicity had been bad, that the jury had not been prejudiced, that they were a normal jury, that the trial was conducted by the judge in an orderly manner, that the judge was impartial, and that the uh, conviction uh, was a fair conviction. In other words, that uh, Sam Shepard had been, been uh, found guilty by a jury, that this jury system was not perfect, but it was the best means ever devised by man to determine guilt and innocence.
5: The Supreme Court weighs both arguments. Meanwhile, controversy over the case continues.
8: Well, the, the paper did not play prosecutor, in my opinion. The, uh, the paper did uh, respond to the uh, thoughts of a good number of people in the community, of a good number of uh, law enforcement agencies in the community. What was that thought? To the effect that uh, this was a case in which uh, uh, police activity was not being carried out in the degree to which it would have been carried out, had the individuals in the case been less prominently placed in the community. It's pretty hard for one voice
7: to overcome millions of voices represented by the circulation of huge newspapers, of course.
8: I believe the Page One editorials came about after uh, a good number of people in the community, uh, a good number of people uh, um, outside of this community even, some uh, law enforcement people in this community got the idea, the thought, uh, right or wrong, that uh, an attempt was being made by certain individuals to, in the vernacular, uh, cover up uh, what had happened in the Shepherd home on the morning of July 4, 1954.
7: As I look back and as Ariane straightened out my thinking a little bit on this, I couldn't blame people and, for instance, New York or Chicago, for taking and uh, respecting the wire releases from Cleveland because they're used to this, and they didn't have any basis of disbelief until some of the men and women came to the trial, and people like Paul Holmes, Dorothy Kilgallen, many others, a lot of local people, news people, television people, realized what a phony thing it was and how I was... Absolutely uh, not proven guilty and railroaded. And, and what wasn't until this happened that uh, some objectivity entered the picture of uh, news media. And it was too late by then. Twice before, the Supreme Court
5: has refused to review the Shepard conviction. Now, in 1966, 12 years after the trial the court hands down a 29-page unanimous decision with one justice abstaining. Here are portions of that decision. Bearing in mind the massive pre-trial
9: publicity, the judge should have adopted stricter rules governing the use of the courtroom by newsmen. Secondly, the court should have insulated the witnesses. All the newspapers apparently interviewed prospective witnesses at will and in many cases disclosed their testimony. Thirdly, the court should have made some efforts to control the release of leads, information, and gossip to the press from police officers and the counsel for both sides. Much of the information thus disclosed was inaccurate, leading to groundless rumor and confusion. In addition, reporters who wrote or broadcasted prejudicial stories could have been warned of the impropriety of publishing material not introduced in the proceedings. In this manner, Shepard's right to a trial free from outside interference would have been given added protection without corresponding curtailment of the news media. The Shepard jurors were allowed to go their separate ways outside of the courtroom without adequate directions not to listen to anything concerning the case. Moreover, the jurors were thrust into the role of celebrities by the judge's failure to insulate them from reporters and photographers. The numerous pictures of the jurors, with their addresses, exposed them to expressions of opinion from both pranks and friends. Where there is a reasonable likelihood that prejudicial news prior to a trial will prevent a fair trial, the judge should continue the case until the threat abates or transfer it to another county not so permeated with publicity. Since the state trial judge did not fulfill his duties to protect Shepard from the inherently prejudicial publicity which saturated the courtroom, the case is remanded to the district court, with instructions to order that Shepard be released from custody unless the state puts him to his charges again within a reasonable time.
5: It is so ordered. Four months later, a retrial is held in the same building where Shepard was found guilty 12 years before. Once again, the state seeks to prove him guilty of murder. F. Lee Bailey defends Shepard. This time, the attitude of the court reflects the new
7: Supreme Court ruling. In order to conduct this trial, I deem it's necessary
3: that there be no cameras, or sound equipment of any sort on the second floor of the courthouse nor the third floor of the courthouse. This will be journalized and any violation thereof will be considered a contempt
5: of court and handled accordingly. The trial lasts three weeks. The jury deliberates eight hours. Sam Shepard is found not guilty.
4: Uh, Okay, guys, clear out. Hey Sam! Hey Sam! Let's before.
3: get
7: the hell out of the way. And from the top of the courthouse, a group of uh, female inmates
4: in the jail there shouting encouragement, cheering. Sam Shepard and his wife Ariane. ...found not guilty by a jury of seven men and
3: five
5: women. Ah. In the end, Sam Shepard's victory proved limited. The murder of his wife, Marilyn, remained unsolved in a matter of continuing controversy. His second wife sued for divorce less than three years later. Yet out of these unhappy events, something of value was gained. Following the Supreme Court rulings... Both the press and the bar adopted new rules controlling publicity in criminal cases. Are you kidding? Freedom of the press and the right to a fair trial, both essential in a free society, were now more equally protected.
3: What's your reaction right now? Your client's not guilty. Uh, Give us your thoughts, please. My reaction is that the system has paid off.
7: Does that mean you
2: won't
3: seek any further payment by way of moral claim for ten years in prison? It means nothing of the sort. This was a criminal charge. The defendant has been found not guilty, and I think that's what he should have been found. You're going to seek compensation from the state for the ten years by way of moral claim. Well, if it is improper to publicize a criminal case before trial, it's equally improper to publicize a civil case.
4: (laughs) come (laughs) on, watch that camera my you leg. Like... Oh, my foot. Get off my
2: foot. All right, all right. Dr. Sam, carry yeah. on. Turn around here give me you
7: beard. One
8: more. Oh, you know that's great. All right.
9: at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
0: True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs,